This episode of Armchair Explorer is brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. With seven drive modes, the Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. And epic journeys is what we're all about. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Welcome to Armchair Explorer on location. Travel and adventure stories recorded in the field in the most immersive way possible, designed to give you a glimpse of what it feels like to be there for real. Are you ready? Let's go. Guys, I had a lot of fun making this episode. I'm so excited to share it with you. We were actually in Tennessee doing a story about the Tennessee music pathways, which was awesome. And we're going to share some of those episodes soon. But while we were there, we also got to do the Tennessee Whiskey Trail. Now, we saw a lot of cool distilleries, but let me just tell you, one of them is surely the most terrifying whiskey distillery in the world. It's in a former prison. And let me just say, walking around there, stuff happened. So you got to listen to the end to hear that. So pour yourself a wee drab, I know I am, and join me now on the Tennessee Whiskey Trail. Welcome to the Tennessee Music Pathways podcast. We're going to take you on a journey from the Great Smoky Mountains in the roots of country to the banks of the Mississippi and the birth of rock and roll. This is the soundtrack of America, made in Tennessee. Welcome to the Tennessee Music Pathways. For our last episode of this series, we're doing something a little different. We're stepping off the music pathways and onto the whiskey trail. Now in Tennessee, whiskey and music go together like Beale Street and the blues. And the Whiskey Trail, which knits together more than 25 craft distillers across the state into one epic road trip, is the best of both worlds. So join me now on a more than 600 mile journey as we explore the spirit of Tennessee in every single drop. Whiskey in America is as old as America itself. This is Heath Clark from Company Distilling just outside of Nashville. He's a founder of H. Clark Distilling, the Tennessee Distillers Guild, and the whiskey trail itself. A lot of the folks who came over were experienced whiskey makers. And so, um, you know, during the Revolutionary War, that time period, most people lived in the country. They lived on farms. And so having a still on a farm was like saying you had a plow or you had a garden hoe or you had, you know, seed. It was just what you did. There was nothing unique or different or, or odd about it at all. So it was as tied to American life as the open plains, really, you know, expansion and all that. And they took root so much that, you know, our, our first president actually tried to enforce a whiskey tax to pay for the, the Revolutionary War. Which was a bad idea. George Washington, who was himself an accomplished distiller, chose the wrong thing to tax. 
The farmers protested and refused to pay. Officials were attacked. One unlucky fellow was stripped naked, covered in tar and feathers, and abandoned in the forest. To say it was unpopular is not even coming close to how much people loved their whiskey. By 1774, an organized full-scale whiskey rebellion had begun. But it didn't last long. Washington had to bring out the army to put down the rebellion. It got that bad. And a lot of them just left. They left Pennsylvania, they left New York, they left New Jersey. These were places that were the leading whiskey producers in the country, and they just left. Where did they go? They went where the army couldn't find them. So they ended up in what became Kentucky, what became Tennessee, where um, another change happened. So rye whiskey was the whiskey of America, uh, really since its founding or even establishment as colonies, because rye grew really, really well in New York, Pennsylvania. So when people got to what is now Tennessee and Kentucky, they made whiskey with what they had. They made it with corn instead of barley, instead of rye because that's what grew there. And so bourbon, what is sort of America's famous, or most famous whiskey, came about purely in the American spirit of pragmatism. So it was, we used the grain we had, we put it in the vessel we had, we used the wood we had. That's the story of bourbon. The story of American whiskey is the folks who came here were sort of self-selecting as hard-headed, fairly adventurous types of people. They didn't like being told what to do, still don't. <laughs> kept getting away, uh, moving and moving to do the craft and live the life they wanted to live. And they made the whiskey that they could and they made it the best they could. But then in 1920, disaster struck. Prohibition. It not only made the manufacture and sale of alcohol legal, but cast it as immoral depravity. By 1933, when Prohibition ended, almost all whiskey production in America had been completely destroyed. And um, the folks who ended up surviving that era were only the people who had the most stock on hand when Prohibition hit. So we ended up with large, you know, a handful of large distilleries because of the hundreds and thousands of craft guys, you know, local farmers literally making whiskey, uh, they all got shut down. So. Um, you know, that's how we ended up with just a handful of big distilleries. Prohibition closed them all down, uh, the culture changed, and the people who survived were just the big guys at the end of that movie. But now that's changing. Craft distillers in that original spirit of American pragmatism, that spirit of small family and friend-run operations are springing up again. And supporting that resurgence and introducing people to the new generation of American whiskey pioneers is what the Tennessee Whiskey Trail is all about. It's getting back to our roots in a lot of ways. You've got 28 distilleries, 600 miles, and the distilleries are as different as the music that travels with them and as different as the landscape. You go from Mississippi Delta and West Tennessee to Middle Tennessee, rolling hills, open fields, a lot of trees, and then mountains. And so our offerings here are so incredibly different and you get to taste so many different American cultures. You know, so West Tennessee is very different than East Tennessee. Middle Tennessee is different than both of them. And so the magic and the beauty of the Whiskey Trail is that you've got different spirits, you've got different expressions, you've got different places, different music. Each leg of the journey is, is, is rich in that place and each tells a story of their own. 
That's really what the Tennessee Whiskey Trail's about. It's not just the spirits. We want to be the connective tissue to an experience that ties people from all around the world, our neighbors uh, here in the States, our friends um, around the world too, not just our spirits, but our culture and our people, our music and our food. Distillers here are crafting spirits as diverse as Tennessee music itself. Award-winning vodka and rum, some of the best gin in the world, and of course, a little moonshine here and there too, just keeping the tradition alive. The Whiskey Trail can be done in its entirety or just one distillery at a time. There's thematic journeys, tunes and tasting, whiskey and waterfalls, and smaller sections based around Tennessee's most loved cities and geographical areas. We'll be starting in Memphis and gradually making our way east, picking out some of our favorite distilleries along the way. And having a drink or two. It's okay, producer Jason is driving. So hop on in and let's go for a ride. Alex, hey, how's it going? Good, how are you? I'm awesome. I'm so excited because this is our first stop in the Whiskey Trail in Memphis, Tennessee, one of my favorite cities in the world. Welcome. Thank you. We're speaking with master distiller Alex Castle from Old Dominic Distilling in Memphis, which has a story as old as the city itself. Memphis is known for its music, but like this is the little secret, isn't it? Because Absolutely. old Dominic makes some pretty special whiskey, right? We do, we do. We've uh, been at it since uh, the 1800s. Oh, really? Actually, yeah, before Prohibition. Um, old Dominic was a whiskey that was founded by our, our founder, Dominico. Um, and of course, he named it after himself. Old Dominic, <laughs> right? That's, that's what you do. Right. Um, unfortunately, Prohibition happened. But his great-great-grandson, who is the president of the parent company, decided to bring old Dominic back, and that's why we are standing in this building today. So when Dominico was born, when did he come to the States? He's an Italian immigrant. Um, chose Memphis because his uncle was already here and worked with him, um, learning the ropes at his business, and then founded De Canale and Company in 1866, along with the old Dominic whiskey brand. And right here we're seeing this beautiful display case with all sorts of like old bottles and old photographs and awards. Like what, what's some of the stuff we're seeing here? Yeah, so the um, family apparently were a bunch of um, pack rats and held on to almost every document I think that ever existed so for though, them. Right? Lucky for you guys. So. <laughs> so we have ledger books that date all the way back to the founding of the company. And we also have old bottles from before Prohibition. We have the old Dominic whiskey bottles, some decanters. We even have one of the original bottles of Dominic Toddy, which was a pre-Prohibition product. Um, and that bottle, while it's empty now, was actually full and wax sealed back in 2014 when this project started. And so they cracked open that bottle because we, we couldn't find a recipe for it. So we cracked it open and had it analyzed so we could reverse engineer it into what we now call the Memphis Toddy, and it's a flavored bourbon. Wow. I didn't know, so how does that work to reverse engineer a whiskey? Like, that seems... So, doing various tests, like gas chromatography, you're able to see the peaks that can kind of indicate what compounds are present mm. and what food would then cause that compound to be present. And so we were able to come up with a list of likely ingredients. And then from there, it was just creating something we thought tasted good. I love that. So it's like when you're tasting Old Dominant Whiskey today, you're literally drinking what he tasted, you know, more than 100 years ago. We would like to think that, that yeah. yes. <laughs> That's amazing. I love that. So have you always wanted to be a distiller? Is that something you've always been interested in? Uh, 
for the most part. Um, I guess it was about 14 or 15 when uh, the idea kind of popped up via my mom. She's the one that suggested it. And something about it kind of just clicked. And so it's, that's the path I've been on for well over two decades at this point. You have the coolest mom I've ever heard of. Like, How many moms of 14-year-olds go, you know what you need to do? You need to get into whiskey. <laughs> She doesn't really drink either, so I haven't quite figured that one out. Alex shows us around the facility, which is gorgeous. Hardwood floors and brass finishes, exposed industrial chic ceilings and brickwork. There's a wraparound bar, a rooftop lounge, glass windows let you look inside the distillery itself. And mom was right. Alex is a master craftswoman. We taste her Hewling Station straight bourbon, a homage to the whiskey of 1866 Memphis, creamy and sweet with subtle hints of spice. We try the Formula Number no. 10 gin, infused with juniper, coriander, chamomile, and ginger root, balanced by whispers of citrus, good enough to sip neat. And then we come to that special whiskey they reverse engineered from a dusty old bottle tucked away in a long forgotten warehouse. The original Old Dominic Memphis Toddy. It, it smells like Christmas. Wow. It's such a rich scent too. You can, you can kind of pick out all these different elements of it, which is, which is absolutely lovely. All right, I'm going in. Oh, oh my gosh. That is my new holidays whiskey. Like, put the bottle on the table. I'm ordering it for Christmas. That is delicious. So, that product actually existed before Prohibition. We actually have old advertisements for it from that time frame that said recommended by all the best doctors in Memphis. <laughs> Why can't we get those doctors anymore? Why can't I get that on my insurance? <laughs> right? Yeah, I'm pretty sure we would be shut down if we tried to advertise like that anymore. I think like 50 years from now, we'll come around and be like, they were actually right. Yeah, they were on something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So we're, st we're in Memphis, we're at the start of the trail and we're just about to head out east. What are your recommendations? What should we do? What are your tips? Oh man, I, I, hope, I hope you've allowed like three weeks to be able to do this. <laughs> um, yeah, you're gonna see if, if you're able to do the whole trail and it's, it's an undertaking, but if you do the whole trail- I'm up for the challenge, Alex. <laughs> I, think, I think you can do it, I think you can do it. You get to see the entire state. I mean, we are, we're the member on the West Tennessee, like we're the only West Tennessee distillery right now. Um, but you'll see just how different West Tennessee is to Middle Tennessee, to Eastern Tennessee, just from a landscape perspective. But then the distilleries are all completely different. We're an urban distillery. We are two blocks from Beale Street. But then you'll see some of our really small distilleries are out in the boondocks. Like you, you think you made a wrong turn as you're going to them. And you'll, you're just gonna see the whole gamut of what the spirits industry can be. That's beautiful. All right, I'm excited. This is a great start too. All right, what's all right. next? Let's go. From the rock and roll and soul of Memphis, we drive east to Chattanooga, a beautiful music city on the banks of the Tennessee River. And just like Old Dominic, we find whiskey infused with the deep history of this town. And a little mad science too. Aaron, welcome to Chattanooga here. We're at the Choo Choo, and it's also, <laughs> it's also the site where we decided to put Gate 11 Distillery. We've been here about three years, and uh, every day we're come to do something a little different, so. 
This is Bill Lee, owner and master distiller of Gates 11 Distillery, which is located inside Chattanooga's historic train terminal station, otherwise known as the Choo Choo. Well, the Chattanooga Choo Choo is the last surviving train station in Chattanooga, and Chattanooga is defined around the world primarily as a train town through its association with that song, the Chattanooga Choo Choo. It was actually Glenn Miller. Uh, Glenn Miller did this song in the movie Sunrise Serenade, and it's the place where a lot of people started journeys from here all over the country. And we like to tell people when they come to our place, they're starting a journey too. So if you've heard of Chattanooga Choo Choo, you want to come here and see the trains and experience it. But if you want to taste it, you have to come to Gate 11 Distillery there. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. From 1909 to 1970, everyone traveling south by train passed through this station, including many of the musicians and music fans who would help to put this town on the map. And today, although it's no longer a functioning train station, much of that history remains. In fact, Bill ages his whiskey in a boxcar and his indoor-outdoor bar looks out at a vintage bright red steam train just outside the door. There were these big gates here and there was the number 11. So this is actually gate 11 in the train station. And what's not commonly known is the choo-choo there is on track 11. So, so this is the actual gate 11 that the, the train would pull into. Where we were, and that window over there, which says tickets, was all covered up. But it's, it was one of the ticket windows. And so we uncovered it, put a little decal there to remind people that, uh, yeah, this was a functional rail station. And now it's kind of undergoing another renaissance and reimagining as a sort of an entertainment zone. And we're, we're part of that. Uh, we're, we're not backward looking. We're sort of contemporary, even though we've kind of fitted out this place a little retro, but it, this was supposed to be a, a blend of retro and and fantasy, really, uh, a little otherworldly kind of thing we were going for, a little steampunk maybe, I don't know, but... Um, I see that. You got that kind of like exposed ceiling industrial look, which is so cool. You got the red brick back there with the stage. But not, not stark industrial, kind of warm industrial, and uh, and... You know, a little mad science going on back there. That's what we're going for. And that's what we do, actually. I've been accused of being a, a mad scientist. Whiskey is mad science. A little bit well, of insanity, a little bit of skill. That's a good way of putting it, yeah. I would say definitely some of both, I would think. Bill takes us into the back room where he makes the whiskey. And if outside is inspired by the history of Chattanooga, inside is the future. Because this little lab is the epitome of what craft distilling is all about. And it's exactly what you would expect from a mad scientist. We like to tell people we really embrace craft down to the point of let's build our own system. So this is an old steam kettle. I've put an agitator on. This is where we mash up grain. This is a fermenter vessel right here. We'll ferment our grain for when we're making whiskey. It takes about a week. So uh, corn, barley, rye, we source from a farm south of Nashville. When fermentation is done, we bring it over to the pot still. This is this thing right here. We got about it's a 475-gallon pot. We have about 300-plus gallons of mash that'll come in here. And we put heat on this, and it'll drive the alcohol, the spirits, up through a column, hits a condenser, and then comes down right here, and we capture it in a, a drum like this. 
you know, you go to some of the big distilleries and it's industry, isn't it? Like you walk around and it's just huge industry. I feel like back here is like a little bit of mad potions room. It's a little science, yeah. A little alchemy. A little alchemy, but that's magic, right? We're not against being a little romantic about it, too. (laughs) I come out of big company distillation, so I'm pretty well grounded in the technologies. To me, this is an exercise in how do you miniaturize these things? And what I've basically done is created a distilled spirits pilot plant here with a lot of different capabilities. That's why we have different kinds of stills. This is where we do the botanical extractions, these two, for the gin and for the absinthe. And this is the uh, Frankenbeast I'm working on here. I'm going to bring this back to music and Sun Studios because Sam Phillips' vision of Sun Studios was that he would get a bunch of talented musicians into one room, the Magic Sun Studios room, and he would capture whatever that energy that happened between those musicians in that moment was. And I feel like the big distilleries like Jack Daniels, what they're doing is they're capturing the perfect take from every single musician in isolation. And what's happening at smaller distilleries like this is you're just capturing the magic in the room. And that's something that tastes great about that. Aaron, we are the Sun Studio of craft distilling. I've never thought of it that way, but you know, I've been to the I've been to Sun Studio. I've been in that room. I've seen the million dollar quartet picture. And you know, there is something special about that room that defies technical explanation. It's called serendipity. Yep. It's called synchronicity. So anyway, I don't know. Sun's a place, special place. Well, Bill, we're grounded in history here at Gate 11. We're next to the famous Chattanooga Choo Choo, but I feel like you're pushing things forward in a, in a really awesome way. So thanks for that Sam Phillips spirit. I'm tasting it. I'm tasting it every drop, and I love it. Thank you so much, Aaron. It's been great having you here. Gate 11 is not just a great distillery. It's also one of the best cocktail bars in the city. We sip his absinthe blanche dripped into his Sazerac, his signature white rum in a dark and stormy, and his Ross and McClatchy single malt in one of the best old fashions I've ever had. But if Gate 11 is rooted in Chattanooga's past, a couple of hours down the trail in Knoxville, one distillery is founded on the modern energy and fun of one of Tennessee's coolest towns. This episode of Armchair Explorer is presented by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. From muddy jungle paths and snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has the capability to take you to some of the most epic destinations on Earth. And Pathfinder, that's a pretty cool name, isn't it? Because that's also what this show is all about. Exploring, getting off trail, having adventures, finding your own path and living life to the fullest. Sound like you? Yep, sounds like me too. Which is why I'm so excited to partner with Nissan. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has seven drive modes, available intelligent 4x4. It's got the best towing capacity in its class, up to 6,000 pounds. So go ahead and bring all that gear with you and lots more. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder, a vehicle built for adventures everywhere. So thanks again to Nissan for sponsoring this episode and for the reminder to chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures and enjoy the ride along the way. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Postmodern Spirits is located just kind of right downtown, right in the heart of the um, what we refer to as the old city. 
This is Stanton Webster, one of the owners. It is kind of the heart of the nightlife. We make spirits that kind of represent that nightlife. So that kind of made perfect sense for us as the place to locate this distillery, because that's what we do. We manufacture nightlife. Uh, we manufacture great spirits. Uh, we make fun gins. We make some really cool whiskeys, lots of cocktail liqueurs, Amaro, fun stuff like that, that are very unique and very much everything is intentionally centered on the notion of Knoxville and what's happening in Knoxville. That's so awesome. We manufacture nightlife. That might be the coolest thing we've heard yet on the, on the whiskey trail. We love being right in the mix of that and we kind of see that kind of wonderful intersection of um, spirits and music. And, you know, we, we see music as kind of that ultimate expression of art and that's kind of what we see that we do too. Like, you know, we say our spirits are kind of the intersection of chemistry and artistry. And so as as we were thinking about postmodern spirits and what we wanted to do, you know, we love cocktails and cocktail culture, and that, you know, ties in so much with seeing live music and being in that experience of that musical experience. But the other side of it was we wanted to kind of center our whiskey portfolio and what we offered with whiskeys on what was happening here in Knoxville. And that was a big beer scene, a very dynamic beer scene. And so that's kind of what we did was we took kind of recipes for local beers and reimagined those as whiskeys um, and kind of got to tap into that artist side of, of creation and created something that was totally unique to this area. How does that work? Like on a technical level, how the, how the heck do you do that? So we start with a mash of 100% malted barley. We smoke about 25% of it with cherry wood. And that was the mash for a local brewery's uh, smoked pale ale from a brewery called Crafty Bastard. And we start the same way they do. We mash, mash our grains in, extract all those um, complex carbohydrates, break those down with the enzymes that are naturally present in the barley. And then we drop our yeast in and do some fermentation. And we kind of take a pretty similar approach on the fermentation that brewers do. We're very careful um, and very clean with our fermentation, much like the brewers do as well. From there, we pump our mash over to the still and um, do a distillation and barrel age it in new charred American oak barrels, just like you would a Tennessee whiskey or a bourbon. And after it rests for, you know, at least three or four or five years, then we have wonderful whiskey to serve people. Blind taste test, you got your pale ale, you've got your whiskey. Can you taste the correlation between the two? Um, you can definitely taste the smoke. Okay. You know, the smoke comes through both in the beer and in the whiskey. You definitely get some malt sweetness out of the whiskey and you definitely do not get carbonation out of the whiskey like you would the beer. So there are some similarities. There are some really big differences too. All right. So this is my favorite time of the tour. <laughs> Sample time, right? Right. We make two distinct whiskeys here at Postmodern. We've got a straight malt whiskey and American single malt whiskey here um, that I thought we might try first. Sure. So we'll pour a little, pour a little malt whiskey. That's a sound I always love to hear. All right, here we go. All right. Let's give it a... Let's try it out. Cheers. Cheers. So it always helps me a little bit to kind of get the... What kind of notes and flavors am I, am I trying to pick out here? I tend to start by, um, you know, by really getting in there, giving it a good sniff, 
Um, we tend to taste, you know, we, we've got our basic taste, our basic sense with taste, but so much of what we can appreciate when we're tasting things comes from that nose, mm-hmm. from, uh, from all those. So I tend to give it a nice big sniff. I'll uh, make sure I open up my mouth when I'm giving it a sniff to help bring some more of those flavors well, I, in. I've never heard that before. That's what you're supposed um, to do. I like to try it both ways. Mm-hmm. Give it a sniff like with your mouth closed and then try it with it open. No, you're right. So quite a lot of sweetness I'm smelling there. Mm-hmm. Knoxville is all about bluegrass too. A lot of bluegrass came out of here. And, and one of the things that's so special about bluegrass is it's about playing with your community, with your friends, on your back porch in that moment. And that song happens in that moment. So I think when I when I smell this, I'm getting notes of bluegrass now. Oh, there you go. There you go. <laughs> a little mandolin on the yeah, front. Yeah, yeah. Five-string banjo. Yeah. All right. So we're about to taste the rye double gold. Now, just so I know what to expect, how does a rye whiskey differ from a malt whiskey in taste? So in general, typically what you're going to see with rye is spice. Mm-hmm. Pepper, um, so it's going to hit you much more at the front of your palate, whereas the single malt kind of hit us a little more up front with those caramelly notes, those sweeter notes. The rye is going to be much more aggressive. Oh, it's completely different. It's completely different, isn't yeah. it? Do you think that there's because whiskey is such a deep taste, right? Like the more that you drink whiskey, the more you learn to appreciate the depth of flavors in, within whiskey. Yeah, I think the best way to look at getting into whiskey and experiencing whiskey first is to go for things that are a little bit lower proof. So if you start with the, say, 80 to 100 proof whiskeys, typically those are going to be easier on your palate. They're going to be easier to understand and comprehend. And after a couple of years of that, then you kind of progress up to things that are a little closer to barrel strength. There's a big movement in whiskey right now for single barrel whiskeys. So people that will just bottle all the contents of one barrel and releasing them at barrel strength. But there's some really interesting flavors that can be can be discerned at that higher proof. So what I'm hearing is that it's it's quite a long road on whiskey appreciation, like the College of Whiskey Appreciation is a couple of years here, a couple of years there. Is there an accelerated program? Um, I think you nailed it. The accelerated program is college. <laughs> Fair, enough. Fair enough. All right, mate. Cheers. I've really enjoyed trying your whiskey. It's delicious. Well, let's pour another round. This is the birthplace of country music, so it's a beautiful sounding place too. Is this uh, inspiration for, for you in your distilling? To an extent, um, more it's more towards the let's say the rock and roll side of right. the stuff. Just, but it's easy listening whenever it's sipping. I like that. Tastes like rock and roll, but goes down easy like easy listening. Oh, easy, <laughs> man! I mean, it's all around here. We've come to Bristol, Tennessee, in the northeastern corner of the state to meet Nick Bianchi, the owner and head distiller of Lost State Distilling. But we're getting to do more than just taste the whiskey. So are we going to get to actually take part in a little bit of this today, which is really special for me. I drink a lot of whiskey and bourbon, um, but I've never actually got to make some before. So what can I do? What do I do and how do I not mess this up? Let me move. That's it. We got the yeast. Yes. Easy enough process. 
You say that, but you've never seen me handle, like, put up some shelves or anything like that before. If it's anything handy, I could probably mess it up. Oh, you're really good. All right. So, we got you some yeast proprietary to us. It's like it's sealed in a secret bag. Yeah, it does. It looks like one of those, like, camping bags where you, you pour in the boiling water, but it's, it's like a... The Secret Service version of that, isn't there? There's no label on this. Yeah, it's like a... No, whatever, an MRE for whiskey. <laughs> you could tell me the, the recipe, but then you'd have to kill me one of those ones. I could. I couldn't tell you the recipe. I'm not a chemist. <laughs> so, pretty much all you gotta do... Yep. It's open. So, just take it, sprinkle it over the top. Yeah. And actually, since you're gonna be up here, I would actually... Uh, you can stick your finger in and you can try it. Really? Yeah. I'm climbing up the ladder. OSHA approved. I've got, uh, got a secret batch 917 yeast. Yeah. So, really try it. I mean, it looks quite a bit like watery oatmeal. Like, if I, yeah. if I, this is the kind of thing I would it's make right, it. It should be, it should be sure. sweet, actually. All right, I'm sticking my finger in here. It's a little warm. It is sweet. Yeah. It's nice. No, it's, it's quite pleasant. It is. <laughs> Sorry, my surprise in my voice. Yeah. But, yeah, you yeah. know, it doesn't you look pleasant, but at this stage of the process, but. Yeah, would you, would you have that? Do you put some of that with some, to like dip some toast in that in the morning? A little bit, je a little bit of jelly on it. You like soggy toast? Yeah. <laughs> you like soggy toast? <laughs> I, I don't. <laughs> All right. Okay, I've got the yeast in my hand. I'm pouring it in now. Oh, sprinkle it all over. Yeah, like here. Woo! There we go. Making whiskey. Tennessee bourbon. That that is officially the most important part of the process. You said that. It really right? is. Yeah. yeah. There you go. <laughs> Without you, the whiskey wouldn't be done. And also, welcome to Bristol. There's the train. <laughs> so, it's kind of my batch of whiskey, is what you're saying. Like, and so, what you're kind of saying is like, you know, once it goes in the barrel, uh, we might, I might be able to like write my name on it. And Absolutely. Then when it later comes out in the bottle and you're branding it, there might be like a picture of my face or something on it. Like, I mean, we can sure negotiate we what that is. Out, yeah. yeah. Okay. That sounds yeah. great. Yeah, most definitely. <laughs> That was fun. Thanks for letting me do that. So can we go taste some rock and roll? Absolutely. Let's do it. I can even give you a little, this, so this is, let's see. So these are actually ready to be barreled right here. These two, we're all about dipping fingers here. Again, it's very high proof, so it kills germs. Okay. Um, but this is uh, what will be future Tennessee whiskey. Oh wow, that's just, it's, it's white. It's, it hasn't had, had aged yeah. yet, so it hasn't got that color. So this, you can, this has come right off the try. sill, and I don't know if I can reach, oh no, I can't. Yeah, it's, it's hard to tell it's where it is. closer than it appears. Oh yes. Yeah. Okay. Alright, dip my finger in. And this is 110 proof. It's great. Yeah, it's very grain forward. But I mean, that's, that's what you get for white whiskey. White whiskey. You know, I'm getting a little bit of Carl Perkins in there. I'm getting a little bit of Jerry. <laughs> Great Bowls of Fire. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Definitely wreck a hotel room if you drink enough of it. And if you did, you might end up in our next stop. Or at least you could have. Brushy Mountain State Penitentiary opened in 1896 and closed its doors finally in 2009. But in those 115 years, it was one of the most notorious prisons in all of America. We're not going in because we trashed a hotel room. We're going in because it's now been transformed into one of the craziest, most unique, and I'm not gonna lie to you, downright scary distilleries in the world. 
We just arrived at Brushy Mountain Distillery. It's down a valley. The clouds are hanging low. It's one of the most beautiful places we've been here in Tennessee, but it's also a little freaky. Looking up at it now, there's still barbed wire all around the walls. There's still the watchtowers you can see. All the windows are kind of cracked and the walls are faded and crumbling. It's a pretty awesome place to make some whiskey. Brushy Mountain Penitentiary was the end of the line. Some of the most violent criminals in the country were held here in unbelievably horrendous conditions. Forced to work local coal mines, accidents were common, disease was rife, inmates were whipped, beaten and tortured. Death was all around. The prison gates had a nickname and it was well earned. They called them the Gates of Hell. And we're about to have a look inside. So here we are, the big iron doors. If you were, if you were locked up in here, this would be the, your last look yeah, at freedom out here. here too, so. <laughs> All right, let's go in. Oh my God. We've just walked into the cell block and there are iron bars and we can see inside the, the actual cells, they're tiny, what are they, 10 by 10 feet? Yeah. They're hard metal beds. It would have been a tough place to, to be incarcerated. Oh, sure. You know, this old, you can see it kind of faded. It's cold in here, the wind's blowing through. You know, there's four floors and they're kind of caged off. There's a story that uh, I've heard, you know, some people say that they'd want to trade out in the winter and the summer. Everybody in the winter wanted to be up top because the heat was traveling, everybody in the summer would try to make deals and get down here to the bottom, so. Not much heat, not much blankets. You know, you see inside the prison, there's obviously the kind of open toilet, the bunk bed. Yeah. Two people would have been in each one of these cells and there's, there's no room and there's a real atmosphere in here, isn't there? Like you can feel the kind of oppressive atmosphere. Oh man, you would not want to be, I don't want to be stuck in this place for more than a few minutes. No. You can't imagine being here for years on Funny end. story, I guess now is, you know, they probably put some guys that done time making shine back in the days. It was probably good people and spending some time in Brushy, I could only imagine, but now here we are making moonshine in the prison, so. It's a great story though, isn't it? You keep up the tradition of making prison moonshine, but making it a lot tastier. Right? Yeah. So who were some of the the guests here? Well, the only one I'm uh, familiar is James Wright, but uh, I think his cell was 28. 28 right here. James Earl Ray was convicted of murdering Martin Luther King Jr. in 1969 and brought here to serve a 99-year sentence. And he wasn't alone. Serial killers, mob bosses, murderers, rapists, arsonists, all made their home here. And rumor has it, a few still remain. There's some freaky stuff. There's a sign outside that says, beware of snakes and paranormal activity. And, you know, psychics have come in here and I guess picked up on some of that feeling that, that you can really feel in these walls. Have you, have you yourself ever ha experienced anything strange here? My mom actually does all the paranormal, so I get to hear all the cool stories on that. But there's definitely some stuff that can't be explained around here. I'm not. And in a day too, you get experience in the days also, but... Do you have any examples of, of that? 
some you just hear noises that I can't explain. I've not really come up here and played with it, so <laughs> it ain't really my cup of tea. Once you hear that first noise, you're like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to take the word for it, right? Yeah, yeah but, I can um, understand that. This would be maybe the last place in the world I'd want to be in, oh, in the dark, yeah. you know? I don't like coming up here today by myself, having to come up here and move something around or get something, but... Okay. Yeah, it's not the sort of place you'd want to be by yourself. No. <laughs> All right, move away. Uh, huh. <laughs> what was that? I think it's a soundboard door blowing back shut. I hope so. <laughs> I'm glad you just turned the lights on, Kane. I gotta say, I, we walked around the corner and there was just like a tiny shadow, and I was like, oh my god, chills. But upstairs, if you want to check that out real quick, that's a pretty cool place to see is the cafeteria. Okay. Coming upstairs now to the second floor. Passing all these, oh my God, the hallways down these cell blocks are just tiny. And all the bars, there's no privacy. All the bars look out to, to everyone else. Okay, so this is the cafeteria. So this is where three times a day every cell door would open and march 200 inmates in here single file to the cafeteria. But I suppose what's unusual as well is there was a 60 acre working farm that uh, surrounded this in place, uh, including like livestock, butcher house, and crops, and a dairy barn. It really was a kind of self-sufficient little village. I imagine there was some trouble in here. There's some stories been told that some brutal deaths that's been stabbings in here and everything you can imagine in here so wow two hoes there they'd have the little room there they could put their shotgun barrels out for the bing bags and is that right so when they were in here eating there's a kind of cut through glass two or three inches thick with these holes that they would actually put the shotguns through to keep an eye on the inmates It's a strange feeling walking out from the confines of the prison into the courtyard because, you know, there's barbed wire all around. There's these thick, tall walls, 20, 30 feet tall, you know, with these kind of castle-like turrets on top. There's absolutely no way of getting out, but the prisoners would have looked up to this beautiful environment and trees all around them. And that must have been a, a strange experience. And, and this, of course, would be where they would be allowed out for a few hours a day to, to exercise. But there was also some pretty brutal stuff they would have witnessed here too. And, you know, Brushy was notorious for, for many things. It's conditions, the dangerous housing, the brutality and violence of the fellow inmates. But one of the most notable and unfortunate facts of prison life here was the manner in which the guards doled out their discipline. And whippings were actually commonplace and they were carried out right here in the courtyard in front of everyone using a four foot leather strap attached to a baseball bat handle. And you can just imagine the sound of that whip snapping. There's this weird contrast in feeling about being out here as well. Like you can you can hear the bird song. It's almost like kind of peaceful. It, it feels like the exact opposite of what it feels like in the cell blocks. The cell blocks are this claustrophobic uh, place, you know, where 
you just be on top of each other, but then you come out here and you're surrounded by birdsong and you know rushing water and wind through the trees. It's it's a really really surreal place to be. And especially right now because there's a low fog hanging over the mountains and kind of just drifting down to us. If that fog and that cloud gets any lower, I'm just I'm running out of here. That's it. But for the prisoners, there was no getting out of here. Though they tried, James Earl Ray managed to hop the walls using a ladder made of salvaged pipe. Another inmate, James Slagle, spent a year fasting and practicing yoga so he could contort himself into a tiny box. But no one lasted more than a few days because the mountains and thick forests that surrounded them were another kind of prison. Often they would turn themselves in a few days later, freezing, starving, and near death. And when, not if, they were caught, they were put in the hole. And that's where we're going now. Okay. All right. So, walking down this cold, wet corridor to the place where Absolutely no one would want to go. It's getting dark. Oh my God, it's getting dark. We're having to put a flashlight on to walk down these steps. Oh Seriously, what was that? Did you hear that? There's a thing back there. It's a little video recording. It's, I don't know why it's going off right now. But. You guys put a, like a video recording without telling anyone down here? <laughs> I literally heard a voice and jumped out of my skin. So this is the hole. Oh this was. I, you know, it's it's. I don't even want to walk inside it now. It's, it's so dark. This is this is terrifying. Like this is. It's completely dark. We're in a basement. There are no windows. I'm. I'm oh my god! I'm walking inside now. Oh Jesus, it's pitch black. And it would have been pitch black for the inmates that were put down here. There was absolutely no light and really no air. There's a tiny grate above the door. I can, I'm standing in the middle here and my hands are touching both sides. There's barely long enough to fit a bed. I've been in here for about 30 seconds and I can't wait to get out. It feels insanely claustrophobic and scary and dark. And the inmates that were put in here would have spent 23 hours a day in here for days and weeks and even months on end. It was the most feared part of the entire prison. And you can feel it. You can really feel it. I'm getting out of here. Kaden, you're just messing with me. So when you did something that got you down to the hole, you better believe you've done something that's worth sending you to a special kind of hell. This is the video installation we heard coming down the stairs. It plays from inside one of the cells in the hole. And it's real. It's the real-life testimony of a former brushy inmate who actually spent time here in the hole. You think you can't be broke? Well, you better think again for having it. Once you're here, it starts to creep down you. 
It's just you, pitch black darkness. It's the loneliest place in the world. Time seems to freeze. Hours turn into days, into weeks, into months. You do that so you don't break it. It damn sure broke me. I'd like to tell you folks that I hope you enjoy your tour to Russian on Christmas. But I'm dead. And if that wasn't scary enough, Kanan knew something we didn't. Wait, so he had to walk in front of that to turn that on, and that thing was playing for when we walked down, so... <laughs> That's something I can't explain for you. So that doesn't turn on unless someone or something walks in front of it, but yet, when we were 100 feet away, coming down the steps, it was playing. And with that, it was time to leave. So we're getting to do what most inmates never got to do. And those that did, this must have been a beautiful sight. We're walking out of the prison and into freedom. And <laughs> I tell you, I never want to go back in there again. Kanan, get the whiskey out. It's time. I need, I need something. I need to, my hands are shaking. We'd reached the end of the trail. We've sipped reincarnated 19th century toddy at Old Dominic, tasted Sun Studios inspired mad scientist spirits at Gate 11. We've drunk nightlife in a bottle at Postmodern Spirits, rock and roll in a glass at Lost State, and end of the line moonshine here at Brushy Mountain. But there's one story left, and it is perhaps the most important story of all. And it starts with an African-American slave named Nathan Nearest Green and a young man called Jack Daniels. Nearest Green is my great-great-grandfather and the first known African-American master distiller. This is Victoria Edie Butler, master blender at the Uncle Nearest Distillery in Shelbyville. I think for so many enslaved people. It was learned out of survival. He was working on the Dan Call farm in Lincoln County. Dan Call was a preacher, but he was also selling whiskey, and Nears Green is the man who was making the whiskey for him. He is known for and credited for helping to perfect what is known as the Lincoln County process. That is the process that separates us from Kentucky bourbon. And it is the process of filtering whiskey through sugar, maple, charcoal. We believe that it was brought over from our people in West Africa. It's still used today to purify their water. So we believe that Nearest in his infinite wisdom thought if it'll work for water, it ought to work for whiskey as well, and indeed it did, and it is still being used today. That makes Nearest Green the godfather of Tennessee whiskey. In more ways than one, because someone else noticed what Nearest was doing. Jack Daniel also was on the Dan Call farm. He lived there and worked there as a chore boy. And during the course of them living there, Jack Daniel wanted to know what was going on in the distance from the house. And that is where Nearest was making his whiskey. You know, in my mind, I'm thinking uh, there was a lot of smoke, mules, 
And finally, Dan Call, this preacher and uh, the man that, that Nearest was making whiskey for, he finally gave in and he took this young chore boy to meet Nearest Green. And he introduced Nearest to Jack, saying that Nearest Green was the best whiskey maker around. And soon thereafter, Nearest took Jack under his wing, taught him everything he he knew about distilling whiskey and making whiskey. And when Dan Call decided to get out of the whiskey business, uh, Jack Daniel, being a young man by now, he bought the distillery and named it after himself. And he asked his good friend and mentor, Nearest Green, to stay on with him. And of course, Nearest did. Uh, Nearest and Jack had a beautiful friendship, a friendship that was unheard of at that time. Jack Daniel always gave Nearest the credit that he was due along with his sons and his grandsons. They were paid equal wage, like their white counterparts. And he certainly didn't own Nearest. Nearest was about 28 years Jack senior. And what they had was a beautiful friendship. But that story may have remained buried if it wasn't for a lady called Fawn Weaver. She heard a rumor about the man who taught Jack Daniels, tracked it down to Shelbyville, and without any experience in distilling whatsoever, decided to open Nearest Green and bring that story back to life. But she didn't want just anyone to do it. Fawn wanted to keep it in the family, which is how she ended up meeting Victoria and asking her, the great-great-granddaughter of Uncle Nearest, to help make the whiskey. There was only one problem. She had no idea what she was doing. Victoria had spent the last 31 years as a cop supervising a team of forensic analysts. She'd never distilled a thing in her life. But it turns out, Fawn was right. Whiskey making is in Victoria's genes. And just like her great-great-grandfather, she caught on quick. I blended the first batch in March of 2019. In July, it hit the market. And right out the gate, we started winning awards with it. Gold, double gold. And shortly thereafter, I was elevated to Master Blender. And in 2021, I received Master Blender of the Year by um, the Icons of Whiskey, Whiskey Magazine. To be honest about it, far too long, the spirits industry has been a white male-dominated space, right? And here comes Uncle Nearest Premium Whiskey, and we're completely different from that. We're the only major whiskey, uh, American whiskey brand that honors an African-American man. We're the only major whiskey company that is owned and led by an African-American female. And I am the first African-American female master blender. I am a proud black woman, and I am happy to lead the charge in being the first in in those categories. I have learned to embrace that whiskey truly is in my blood. Near Green was a history maker in regards to the spirits industry. More than 165 years later, his great-great-granddaughter, 
has the opportunity to do the same. And so I'm just extremely proud of it, knowing that my great-great-grandfather is now getting the recognition and proper honors that he's due, that more than 165 years later, that people around the world are starting to know who he is and what his contribution was to the spirits industry as a whole. And so I'm, I'm extremely proud. And Nearest would have been proud too, because it's stories like this that make the Tennessee Whiskey Trail so special. The story of American whiskey began with the same spirit of pragmatism and independence that founded this country. It wasn't big industry. It was a craft, a skill, worked on in the barn, family recipes passed down through generations. And now, finally, more than a century after Prohibition ended, craft distilling is making a resurgence. And it's bringing with it more than just spirits. The trail is a thread that connects great drinks with great music, great food, and the great outdoors. And whether it's gin, vodka, rum, whiskey, or moonshine, whenever you raise a glass, you're tasting the spirit of Tennessee itself. Whiskey is this combination of fire, water, wood, and time. For me, the best tasting whiskey is one that hits all those notes. When I taste our bourbon, I taste a feeling. Like, it's like the happy place feeling. You know, it, it, it's not the alcohol, it's the flavor that triggers those feelings. Those moments on the porch, you know, where you're contemplating life with your family, you know, it's the smells of spilled whiskey, like, you know, your team won, you know, and you spill it on you. All those things come together, and the perfect glass of whiskey to me is one that has familiarity to all those emotional ties in my life. And so uh, that's what I taste when I taste whiskey. If this episode inspires you to come to Tennessee and explore these pathways yourself, music or whiskey, you can find out more about how to do that, including all the things we mentioned in this episode, by going to tnwhiskeytrail.com or tnmusicpathways.com. If you haven't already, go back and listen to the first five episodes where we take you on a musical journey from Bristol and the birth of country music to Memphis and the start of rock and roll. So hit that subscribe button and follow us wherever you get your shows. Thank you to all the musicians who featured in this episode. Much of it was recorded live on location with some of Tennessee's best talent, including Ed Snodderly, Rick Rushing, Kaylee Bishop, Evie Andrus, Alex Leach, and Boogertown Gap. The distilleries we featured on this episode were Old Dominic in Memphis, Uncle Nearest in Shelbyville, Gates 11 in Chattanooga, Postmodern in Knoxville, Lost State in Bristol, Company outside of Nashville, and Brushy Mountain. And a special thanks to all the master distillers who showed us around and shared a wee dram or two of their finest wares. This series was produced by Armchair Productions, the audio experts for the travel industry. Find out more at armchair-productions.com. My name's Aaron Miller. I wrote and presented the show, and Jason Patton engineered and produced it. We'll see you out there on the Tennessee Pathways.
Thanks for listening to this Armchair Explorer on location episode. I had a ton of fun making it. I hope you had a ton of fun coming along with me. Next week, we'll be back with our usual format and then there'll be lots more on location stuff to come. 